Tattoo Traditions is a podcast dedicated to the history of tattooing and those that have made significant contributions towards it. This episode is sponsored by ButterUp, a natural, organic, vegan tattoo butter that's made in the UK. We've used it and we can't recommend it enough. This is the aftercare for you. Visit www.butterup.co and use the code Tattoo Traditions, all lowercase, to receive 10% off all tattoo aftercare. If you're an artist or a shop interested in stocking this magic, send ButterUp an email for more information. The link is on their website. Follow ButterUp.co on Instagram. We left England this month and were lucky enough to sit in the New York Sun and talk to the brilliant Mike McCabe. Mike has been an excellent documentarian of tattoo history since the 70s. His interest soon turned into a career mentored by his neighbour and tattooist Richard Tyler. His book New York City Tattoo is legendary and set the blueprint for a lot of the books that follow. We spoke about the Bowery folk hero Tom DeVita, anthropology and much more. Mike's a great storyteller and it's a privilege to be able to share his own story with you. Yeah. So it's really nice to be able to be here and to like talk to you. And sure. Yeah. Yeah. I really like to usually start at kind of the beginning or as, you know, as, as early as you can remember and stuff. Really. With my tattoo experience? Yeah, kind of like really sort of what was your earliest memory of seeing a tattoo? Like, do you remember seeing them when you were younger? Actually, I was brought up in Boston, in Massachusetts. Uh, tattooing was illegalized all up and down the eastern seaboard in the, uh, I think, 1961-62. As, like, everything's modernizing, tattooing at that point was seen as this kind of antiquated leftover from like some kind of weird culture that people didn't want to explore anymore. And so I had one friend who had a tattoo when I was a kid. Yeah. From like two or three, I was brought up in the suburbs outside of Boston. It was like yeah. country, it was like countryside. Yeah. But then if you went a couple towns closer to Boston, a town called Framingham, that was working class. And my buddy Mousy <laughs> had a tattoo of a mouse smoking a joint. Cool. And they had like hips, just a little, a little tiny tattoo. Yeah. But that was it. And uh, there was just no, I mean, there maybe there were people tattooing in Boston. Yeah. But you never heard about it. Okay. It just didn't. So when I came to New York the first time in 75, then I came back to live because I was studying in 75. And then I came back in 78. Yes, 78, 79. Yeah. And... Um, in 1980, I got thrown out of my illegal sublet, and then I had to move into a real. My brother and I found a real apartment down on East Fourth Street between Avenue C and D in the East Village. In 1970s, you know, 1978, 79, the East Village was pretty dicey. Okay. Now it's completely gentrified. Whatever. Back then, there was a horrific drug trade going on. Yeah. And so Avenue C between. Uh, Third um, and Fourth Street. It's hard to explain this to you. Many of the buildings have been burned down. Yeah. 
So 1970s, as I talked to in an earlier conversation, this area starts to transition. Yes. So you have the original um, immigrant people that come here late 1800s, early 1900s. They get a job and they move to maybe Long Island or they yeah. move somewhere else. Yeah. Then another wave of people come in and another wave of people, always always to the Lower East Side, in the East Village, that's always been kind of the gateway yeah. for this cheap housing. Um, and there used to be small industrial opportunities or small factories and stuff. There was still a small manufacturing factory up the street for me, you know, three blocks away in 1970s. Yeah. I'm um, long gone. Yeah. So... Finally, Hispanic people and African-American people started to populate. This is maybe mid-1970s. Yeah. And the landlords got scared. There were not, not until I think it was 77, 78, there were not any real arson laws okay. that had teeth. Yeah. So the landlords literally burned down their own buildings to get the insurance wow. money. Rather than see their what they would perceive to be their property being uh, degraded by uh, new populations. So when I, East 4th Street, it was all vacant lots yeah. and burned out. They would see like an old tenement, completely caved in, burned out, yeah. that had been burned for arson money. Yeah. And there were no arson laws until I think 78, 79. So they just took the money and ran. Okay, and just left it. And so when you went to the East Village, 2nd Avenue, no. 1st Avenue, no. Avenue A, Dicey. Yeah. Avenue B, worse. Avenue C, whoa. Avenue D, watch your fucking ass. Yeah. And so as you went down the street, you would be walking down East 4th Street, giant vacant lots that had been housing yeah. all burned down and bulldozed. Wow. Or actually burned down and caved in. Now it's all been rebought and re renovated. So that was the cheapest place to get in the park. Right, okay. And I remember people saying, whoa, Mike, you're moving to where? <laughs> Fourth Street between, you're gonna get fucking killed. Yeah. And I remember talking to the super, his name was Victor. And I said, Victor, you know, I was like 24, 26 years, I can't. I said, Victor, I'm gonna get killed. I'm the only white guy, maybe my brother. And he goes, no, nah, Mike, Victor was Hispanic guy. No, it's all good, we're families here. Yeah. And so I said, okay, so it was only, we had a two bedroom apartment for $200 a month. Wow. And it was a shithole. We had to like paint it and whatever. <laughs> but who cares? Yeah. We spent a couple hundred bucks on paint and we had, an, we had exactly. to put, put a new lock on the door, whatever. It was all families. It was pretty, it was nice. Yeah. No problem. I just coincidentally, because I had no idea about any tattooing, nothing. Yeah. Or that New York had a history, nothing. Right, yeah. I just happened to move next door to Tom DeVita oh, wow. and Richard Tyler. Oh, cool. And, and my brother and I moved in in July. It was yeah. hot. And I remember we're shuttling back and forth to get paint and whatever. And our building is at 3.30. And as we're getting to 3, as you're walking and you walk past 3.26, 3.28, two beautiful old kind of brownstones. They're yeah. beautiful, old, kind of like, you know, beat up, but beautiful old buildings from probably early 20th century. There were all these two guys sitting out in the front steps completely tattooed. Right, yeah. DeVita was tattooed from under his chin yeah. to his toes yeah. with a all mixed match of American traditional stuff. Also, he had these Tibetan mantras on his wrist, yeah. big, dark, exotic. And then he had early tribalism. Yeah. Way before that word yeah, was even used. Yeah. And then Tyler, who I broke in with, all Tibetan mantras and Tibetan stuff all over his and it was just so exotic and I'm like I'm like what the what fuck is this? <laughs> yeah. 
And then after these guys see me going back with the cans of paint and they're they finally said, kid, come over here. What are you, David is like, where, where do you come from? Who are you? Because it was like, there's nobody, no white people. Yeah. And I said, hi, nice to meet you. My name's Mike McCabe, this is my brother Jonathan. And they said, you're moving in? <laughs> they were shocked. They were like, what? <laughs> and so I got to be friends with Tyler and Davida. Cool. And then Tyler uh, was this kind of folk, Davida's the folk artist. Tyler was this kind of mystical guy, very interesting guy. Was he a tattooer as well? Though? Yeah, yeah. He, oh, did, right. like, he did all this Tibetan stuff. Oh, cool. He was into all this Eastern stuff. He was in touch with the Dalai Lama's pharmacy wow. in uh, in Tibet. Cool. Or Nepal, probably, at that point. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so Tyler, you, it was all based on power signs. So you had to be tattooed on your birthday, certain time of days, you know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Davida was mostly folk art stuff. Yeah. Um, but to me, I, at that point, no interest in, or no. N- knowledge in tattoo. So I'm like, wow, this is very interesting from a cultural perspective. Yeah. And then, because that first apartment I had moved into before I moved to 4th Street, on the, it was on the Bowery. Yeah. And of course, the Bowery has this legacy and history, and you know about the Bowery. Yeah, yeah. And so the Bowery, Iconic. the quintessential Bowery bum and all this stuff. Yeah. And I lived on the Bowery, and as you walk down the street, there would be men passed out on the sidewalk yeah. with, with uh, wine bottles smashed next to them. It was really not good. It was yeah. bad. You yeah. know? Um, but they're all covered with tattoos. Right. And so these were older guys, so the tattoos maybe from World War II. Okay. And my girlfriend Debbie, her older sister Sandy, worked for Life magazine. Yeah, wow. And I'm like, Sandy. Is there any way you can get me a Nikon with a macro lens? Yes, sweet. And she said, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Oh, cool. Just <laughs> she goes, it. don't lose it, Michael. Oh, good. I'm like, I won't. I'll yeah. keep it around. Don't get it nicked. Don't exactly. Get yeah. So uh, Sandy, she got me a Nikon F with a macro lens. And I just started going up and down the street yeah. asking politely, can I take a picture of your tattoo? Oh, cool. And they look at you like, what? Yeah. To them, they were embarrassed about their tattoos. Yeah, exactly. This whole thing, like your generation, tattooing is now a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Back then, it was seen as a cultural misstep. Definitely. Cultural embarrassment. Yeah. Like, oh, fuck, what'd you do? What'd you do that for? Yeah, yeah. Um, so these guys were embarrassed. But there was one guy, I remember walking down uh, Elizabeth Street a couple times. Elizabeth Street has a, it, it around, uh, I think it's Hester and Elizabeth. It, it turns, like it goes down, but then turns for some reason. Yeah. And so, at that turn, at around this time of the day, the sun. Yeah. And so all the bums would line up in that along that turn to yeah. get sun. Yeah. Because they they you know they're not their health is terrible. Yeah. And there was one man who was actually really his name was Dennis I'll never forget him. Really, he looked like he should be like on the cover of GQ. Cool. With the gray hair yeah. parted, he had a really good presentation, completely covered with tattoos. And so I went over, I said, excuse me, sir, you know, I like, I'm studying, I'm trying to document this stuff. Yeah. Can I sit down and talk with you? And he goes, absolutely. Oh, cool. And so I sat down with Dennis, and he was a smart, smart guy who obviously had a serious drinking problem. Yeah, exactly. He was a Bowery guy. And he's the one who said, McCabe, you need to go to the library. There's a whole history of tattooing. Oh. And I'm like, really? Yeah. He said, go to the research library. And back in those days, the research library on 42nd Street, obviously it was all pre-digital, yeah. had card catalogs. They walk into a massive card catalog room. 
with hundreds and hundreds of card catalogs all alphabetized and probably other ways of cataloging them. Yeah. And you pull out the thing and you yeah. look at it and you look out yeah. and you find tattoo and there's all these old articles from the New York Tribune, the New York Times. That's right. And so I was shuttling back and forth. I would go to the a library yeah. and then you'd have to pull up right down the thing yeah. and then you go to the, uh, whatever they call that, the research library. Yeah. You would go and you have to wait in line. You'd write down the citation number, you'd give it to somebody. Yeah. They would go into the basement yeah. and they would find the document for you. Wow. And so it was like this thing. Yeah. And I would go, I would read it, and then I would go back and Dennis would be sitting there again. And yeah. I'd say, Dennis, I went yesterday, yes. And so that then learning that, that New York City, the tattoo machine was invented here, I think in 1990, no, 1892 or something yeah. like that, by O'Reilly and yeah, Bowery. Yeah. And then Dennis says, yeah, Mike, there's a whole history. And then he said, Mike, my tattoos were done by Bowery guys. Wow. When I was, he used to be a merchant mariner. Okay. So there used to be merchant mariners living in these hotels. Maybe guys from the, from the military living in these hotels that weren't married and they had a bad story. And so he introduced me to other guys and took pictures of them. So then I used that information. Yeah. That's the only thing I really knew about tattooing when I went and finally bounced into Tyler and DeVita. Yeah. And then Tyler kept me on. He goes, McCabe, you got to go back. And then between Tyler and DeVita, yeah. Dennis, names started coming yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. And like, doing your research as well, yep. right? Yeah. But there was very little. Right. Now it's like ridiculous, yeah. obviously because of the internet. Of course, yeah. But there was very little information about tattooing. It yeah. was seen as a backwater embarrassment. Yeah, most of the time if they were writing about tattooing then, it was in a bad way, wasn't it? It yeah. was like a discrimination. Criminality yeah, yeah, or like exactly. some kind of weird sex shit. Yeah. It was like ridiculous. Yeah. And so then Tyler helped me to say, no, this is culture. This is meaningful. This yeah. is human behavior. Yeah. So Tyler helped me out. And that's did DeVita. DeVita was did not so talkative, Tyler Marshall. So then I, um, this is a good story. So then I had a girlfriend who lived in Hoboken, New Jersey. Yeah. To take the path train over there. Yeah. And so I would, of course, stay at the girlfriend's house. And then I had a tattoo shop on East Fifth Street in the basement. This is back when tattooing's illegal. Yeah. I did stuff like this. like. Kind of like Tyler had broke me in. Yeah. So I did. I didn't do a lot of American tradition stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I did kind of like exotic, to Buddhist stuff. Yeah. I did More a lot symbols. of. Kel I was like one of the first guys to do Celtic tattooing. Oh, cool. You know, it was ugh, bad for the eyesight. <laughs> Whoa. That was a mind bender. But yeah. I did some nice. I got halfway decent. I never got to be super good. But looking at your tattoos, yeah, I mean that portrait. I you should, you know I got that good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not super good. Yeah. But I, from talking with Dennis, and then in, and then in Hoboken, one day I was walking from my girlfriend's to the path train. Yeah. And there were four or five guys on, like just hanging out in the sun yeah. in the morning. One guy was an older guy with glasses. He looked to be in his 80s. He wow. looked old. Yeah. He was just covered with tattoos. And I went over to him, excuse me, sir, my name is Michael K. Da, 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 da. Yeah. You know, would it be, ever be possible for me to photograph your tattoo? Because I still had Sandy's camera. Oh, cool, yeah. She lent it, just kind of gave, didn't give it to me, she lent it to yeah. me. And he said, he looked at me like, how did he, like that I had even noticed his tattoo surprised him. Yeah. This is probably 1980. Okay. No, wait a minute, 1980, 1989, yeah. probably 1989. Tattooing had still not become very visible in 1989. So this guy's name was Max. Max. 
and he told me that he was covered, tattooed as a young boy on the Bowery by Charlie Wagner. Wow. I had remembered that name from Tyler and Davida. Yeah. Davida used to talk about Wagner. Yeah. As did Tyler. As did um, Dennis. Yeah. Wagner was the guy on the Bowery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He had the reputation. So Max, he goes, yeah, you can photograph me. But I was an idiot. And I kept going to work. And I'll talk to Max next week. Oh, I'll yeah. talk to him next week. I'm like, finally, I'm like, McCabe, get your shit together, take Sandy's camera, yeah. go take photographs of Max. And I go there one morning on my way to work. I got Sandy's camera ready to go. And there's the guys, but Max wasn't there. Oh, no. And I said, excuse me, I'm Mike. I was talking to Max. And they all looked at me and they said, Max died last oh. week. I'm like, motherfucker, McCabe, you fucked up big yeah, time. I've done the same thing. It's horrible. Needs. It's the worst. And yeah. right then and there, from the conversations where I had learned that the Moskowitz yeah. and Coney Island, I'd heard these names. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't know what they meant. No. And I said to myself, McCabe, you got to get your shit together, man. Yeah. You're an asshole. You've got to make this a project. And so I, that's yeah. how I got into that book. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, for sure. And so then, finally, one of the first guys I went to I think I called up the Moskowitz brothers when yeah. they, they were tattooing Copenhagen and they're over and they were very standoffish. Right. Because again, tattooing had no visibility then. Right. And they said, you know, every time we do an article they make fun of us. Yeah. And we're not sure we want to talk with you. We don't know who you are. Yeah, exactly. And I said, oh, can I come out and talk with you? So I went out there and they see me and they immediately know I'm just some idiot kid. <laughs> and they're like, Yeah, okay, we'll talk. <laughs> you have no ulterior motives here. You're just a, you're just a fool. Yeah. So you really want to talk to us? Yeah. And then they turned me on to, um, yeah, this guy Clayton Patterson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's up the street. Um, he's done a lot of documentaries as well. At some point, you should try to talk to Clayton. Yeah. He got a call. I think he told me. I think. Somebody called him and gave Clayton's book and Blackie's phone number. Right, Blackie yeah. had been like the institution of Coney Island. And then Clayton called me and said, you know, McCabe, I don't know if this is for real, but somebody just gave me Brooklyn Blackie's phone number. And I was like, whoa. And I remember I sat with that phone number for like a week. Yeah. Like, wow, this is going to be, I was scared. Yeah, it's a cold bit. Yeah. And so I remember the day, I, I still got it. I, was, I got the piece of paper with his phone number. <laughs> and I called him up and I said, hello, my name is Mike McCabe. Hello? <laughs> and, uh, and I was anticipating that Blackie, because he had this reputation. Yeah that it maybe it's going to be dicey. Yeah, yeah. Nah, that guy's a sweetheart. Oh, nice. He's like, oh, you know, thank you so much for calling. <laughs> I'm like, he goes, who gave you my number? And he had no idea who, where, the yeah. number. and I said, you know, would it be possible if I rented a car, can I come up and visit? He goes, absolutely. Oh. Come on up to visit. Wow. I was just shocked. And so I did, I rented a car like the next day. So wow. my previous experience, don't fuck don't around. Don't wait, don't wait. I said, yeah. I rented a car, I drove up to, I was in Catskill, New York, and you know, upstate New York, a couple hours. Drove like a maniac, got there, there I found his house, knock on the door, he's like, hello. And I'm like, hey, no. And he's just the sweetest guy. Was he? Yeah, I, I videotaped him. Really oh. old, old, old video camera. You can barely see what the fuck's going on, yeah. but at least I have it. Yeah, exactly, and I, and it's something. I, and then I could use that to, um, for the interview for the book. Yeah. And then once I had found Blackie, I said to the Moskowitz I'd already spoken with. Then I mentioned to Coney Allen and Freddie. Yeah. Because Freddie, very standoffish. They didn't know who the hell I was. Yeah, yeah, of course. They're all completely great guys. But as I said, their history of anybody being interested in tattooing, people are going to make fun of you. Yeah, yeah so they didn't want to talk to anybody. Yeah. But then I said to uh, Freddie, 
and Crazy Eddie. You know, yeah. I, said, I found Blackie, and they're like, wow. You found Blackie? They all thought he had passed away. Oh, because how old was he then by the time you found uh, him? Probably late, I'm thinking late 60s. Right. And this is back in 1980, wait, 80s, 88, 89, okay. and he was yeah. probably in his late 60s. Ah, so he retired, well, he'd well yeah, retired. Yeah, yeah, he'd taken his money and won. Yeah. Um, but that I found Blackie, and yeah. he was such a gen- he was just such a gen- genuine guy. Yeah. He was really interested in my pride. He was cool. a smart, smart guy. Sweet. And so that I had found him, he was like, wow, you found Blackie. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you. Yeah. He became my- White whale. Yeah. yeah. He was, Blackie was super. Yeah. Really and they important. all looked up to him then, did they? Yes, he, he was the best. Yeah, he was their generation above them, Yeah, many of them. Freddie worked for Blackie. Coney Island, Freddie worked for Blackie. Crazy Eddie worked for Blackie. Um, Blackie had the Greco brothers. Yeah. I think the names are like Jamesy and Joey or something. That's right, yeah, They were really bad news. They were were riding on Blackie's uh, tails as well. Right. Blackie had a shop. Those guys just had like little kind of carnival setups. Yeah, yeah. Blackie had a real shop. Yeah. You know, with windows and stuff. Yeah. Blackie was open all year round. Yeah. So Blackie was there all year round. Everybody else would just open up in the summer. Yeah. Um, So... You know, through Blackie's generosity, he was very generous, man. Yeah. And, uh, and do you feel like once you'd talked to him, that then allowed you to open doors? Yes. Because absolutely. you were like, well, I've spoken to Blackie, yes. and they're like, okay. absolutely, that was that was my entree. Yeah. Because Blackie had disappeared. Yeah. I have Blackie's tattoo machines. You know? That's sweet. Yeah, they're really nice old Jonesies, and he told me all about Jonesy. And wow. Blackie had broken in by Wagner, on the Bowery oh, as a kid. Okay. Blackie was a truant, never went to school, always <laughs> being chased by the truant squad. <laughs> and one day he's getting chased around their Bowery, and uh, he had gone by Wagner's shop a couple times, but didn't have the. He was only going like 14, 15. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one time he was walking by, and Wagner called him in. And so Blackie went in, introduced himself, and Wagner was just a, a guy. And uh, Wagner asked, you know, maybe Blackie went back several times, and Blackie, from what he told me, he was first broken in by Wagner. Wow. And then developed his reputation, went to Coney Island. There was also tattooing on Sand Street in Brooklyn by the Navy Yard. Um, Jack Red Cloud, Blackie told me that Red Cloud, he was an elevator operator during the day and at night he would go to his shop by the Navy, Brooklyn Navy Yard, still there. I was just there yesterday on the the ferry with my wife. We take these little little micro ferries now all around the east side. So you hop on for 275 and go all the, my wife and I went yesterday up to, Long Island City, there's a really good Japanese restaurant. You nice. can sit outside. Unbelievable rolls, just yeah. outstanding. Love it. So one of the first, um, they have all different routes. One of the routes to get to Long Island City, first you stop at the, stop at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and then you'd be 34th Street. So the Brooklyn Navy Yard's still there, but of course, back because of the wars, yeah. it was active. Thousands of guys are working at the Navy Yard. It's a good so, place to have a show. Correct, so Red Cloud opened up in Jack Gavitt. But Red Cloud opened up a shot. His name was Red Cloud Jack. <laughs> and I think he was like, using some mythology about Native Americans or something. Oh, right. Possibly. Uh-huh. Um, but Blackie told me that Wagner was very generous. Yeah. Because Wagner had supplies. That's right. Yeah, I've heard And about so that. Blackie basically had a good relationship with Wagner from what he told me. Then, because Blackie was originally from Brooklyn and would come to Manhattan to hang out on the Bowery, yeah. he went to Sand Street, Navy Yard, saw Red Cloud, 
went in and said that he had some knowledge of Wagner. So then Red Cloud, but Red Cloud said, I can't tell you, I can sell you. <laughs> so then Blackie, every time Blackie wanted something, information. You have to pay for it. Yeah, you got to pay for it. So then Blackie, oh, I wow. think he went more to, to Wagner than to Red Cloud. Yeah, yeah, because it was costing him too much yeah, money. I can't tell you, but I can sell you. <laughs> so Blackie uh, had some tubes and stuff like that. Jonesy worked on the Bowery, Bill Jones, the machine maker. Yeah. You worked at Wagner, yeah. And then he moved to Connecticut after that. So this is a very, very tight-knit group of people. Such yeah. a rich history. Yeah. Yep. So Red Cloud, I don't know much about him other than what Blackie told me. I think just a, you know, his tattoos are pretty good. Yeah. And you see the Life magazine we took some production shots and stuff. I've seen the sailors hamming it up at Red Cloud's place. Yeah. The tattooing, I think it was probably, you could sell an article about tattooing even back then. Yeah. Because it was very, you know, out of the ordinary. Yeah, of course. Subculture, sub-subculture. Yeah, so then um, the Bowery, Brooklyn Navy Yard, and then other masculine uh, areas. Madison Square Garden, yeah. like 48th Street, uh, 47th Street, 46th Street. That was a fun zone, all these fun zones. So Madison Square, masculine environment. So then a lot of guys, Crazy Eddie, who actually worked with Blackie as a yeah. kid, and I think Freddie worked up there as well, they opened up a shops around Mas the old, not the new Madison, the old Madison Square Garden. I don't know, 8th Street and 46th Street or something. They opened up tattoo shops in that area because of the, you know, there's boxing, all this stuff, right, masculine yeah. culture. But it's hot, hot. Yeah, so then they opened shops. And, uh, Tony Danessa, who I think is the last living guy from my book, Tony Danessa, who tattoos in, I think, Quebec. Okay. Maybe Montreal. Yeah. And uh, he only owns a shop. He's got to be in his 80s. Yeah, yeah. I think his shop is still very successful. Wow. Well, uh, what's his name? Tony the Pirate, Cambria, just passed away. Yeah, I saw that. And so... Um, Super sad. That was the second to last guy. Yeah. And uh, I think DNS is the last guy. Yeah, in that, wow. In that book. The last living person that was in the book. Yeah. But, I mean... That's brutal. But doesn't that show you how important it was to do that? Yeah. Because now I none see. of them are around. There's That's no right. chance to do it. Yep. Well. And at the time... I remember talking to a couple of publishers and they're looking at me like, what, who cares about this nonsense? Oh, really, yeah. But of course, Hardy, memory, you know, Hardy's, you know, Hardy jumped on it immediately. He goes, McCabe, this is so important what you did. Yeah. And I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Someone else <laughs> Thank finally you. seen yeah, it. Yeah, everybody else is like, why'd you waste your time on this shit? <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't say that now. Because yeah. I went to Columbia, okay? Yeah. And I studied anthropology. And so then, I remember my advisor was a nice woman, Kathy Noonan. And she said, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. And I said, I think I want to get into this, study this tattoo thing as a cultural thing. You know, maybe from a working class perspective. Yeah. She said, yeah, McCabe, that's a good idea. Do that. Oh, yeah, she, was she liked yeah, she was she was But the other, everybody else thought I was crazy. Yeah, exactly. But she didn't. She knew. Cool. Because she was, she was smart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's a nice woman. How did it transition then, Mike, from you... Um, meeting all these guys and starting to get tattooed by them to then tattooing yourself? Because of Tyler. Right. So then Tyler asked me, do you want to learn how to do this? Yeah. And I was an artist. I went to art school, you know, I did some, 
at my undergrad, I finally graduated from the California College of Art. Yeah. And then I did some graduate work at the San Francisco Art Institute as a printmaker. There's also a connection between printmaking because of the ink. Yeah. A lot of tattooers come out of printmaking. Yeah, cool. Um, so I just, I was an artist living in the Lower East Side, presented with this historical situation about tattooing. Yeah. It's also a creative art form. It's also marginal, um, outsider, yeah. outlaw art. You know, I'm a young guy, I'm more attracted to the outlaw message. And I wasn't really attracted to the art world in New York. Wow. It's disgraceful. Yeah. It's just big money and horrible people. Yeah. It's like, whatever. Yeah. I was in a couple of very small group shows. I sold, a, I made sculptures. I sold a piece or two, not many, to uh, like, you know, art type people. I remember going to a couple of openings and just be like, more power this? to them. It's just yeah. not my kind of So uh, the tattooing at that point, as it might for people like yourself, it was a different kind of out of bounds yeah. creativity that just made more sense. To okay, me. sweet. And so he did he give you machines then? Uh, I used his machines at first. Yeah. Then. So this is the seven. Is this still the seven? Are we still at the seven? No, like I broke in with him in like eighty, nineteen eighty. Okay, cool. And uh, he had Spalding and Rogers machines. He had some Zeiss stuff. Oh wow. Um, but there were very few, where are you going to get this stuff? Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, it's all like, how are you going to make a needle, let alone where are you going to buy them? Yeah. So I had to learn how to make needles, how to use a soldering iron. <laughs> you know, I had to mix up the pigments. And then that was the beginning, how to tune your machine. In Europe, I think in England, they call them make and breaks. Yeah, exactly. But here they're reciprocating, you know, coil machines. Jack Ringo called it a make and a break. Yeah, I use a makey breaky or something like that. <laughs> something like that, yeah. I think. Yeah, make and break, I've definitely heard before. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, Tyler, you know, tattooed me and I watched. And then uh, he unfortunately came down with cancer that was wow. horrific. Brilliant. Died very quick. Did he? And uh, so then Tyler's wife, who I didn't really know, she said, you should, you know, Tyler, Dick, his name was Richard Tyler. Yeah. Dick Tyler. So his wife said, you know, Dick broke you in to be a tattoo artist. I can see you, you have a hand at this. You yeah. should just use Tyler's studio and just it. keep going. Yeah. So his studio was very exotic. It was like an ashram. It was very exotic. All this Tibetan stuff all over the place. But it was nice. I had a little tattoo studio. Yeah. I was, you know, very, very scratchy. Yeah. Because you had no idea what you're doing and there was no information. None. None. So I would buy pre-made needles from Spalding and Rogers. They were so expensive. Yeah. I had a sterilizer. I never fooled around with that. Yeah. I remember, you know, saying you have you can't reuse the needles even though they're costing you a fortune. <laughs> I had never did. I never did. Oh, I, I never used reused them. Yeah. I just broke them off. I would show the person. Wow. I would break it off right in front of them. Because you got the stud there, really. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah. You can't fucking know. Yeah. No, you Never did that. Never. Yeah. I just spent a lot of money at Spalding Rogers. They would come with like axle grease on them. They would like they would make the needles and they put they dip them in grease right. and they'd wrap them up in a plastic like a like a sandwich bag. Yeah. It was really crazy. <laughs> yeah. But then because of Davida. Yeah. And there was a French girl named Catherine. 
Catherine LeBeau from Paris, who was a waitress at this really cool restaurant in Prince Street called uh, Raoul's. Yeah. And she had a black ear. Her ear was tattooed black. Wow. And uh, she was an early art tattooer. And she and I were a little bit friends. Her husband's name was uh, Jean-Lou. He was a crack carpenter. Somehow Cat got a line on a basement studio, basement piece of junk, yeah. for like 300 bucks a month. We had 400 square feet. Wow. It's got to cost, I don't know what it cost. Yeah. And it was, and then because Catherine's, Cat's um, husband, uh, Jean-Lou, was a carpenter, he could fix it up. So Jean-Lou was a photographer. He yeah. did this beautiful dark room in the back wow. with a door and everything. And then the front part was a tattoo spot for me and Cat. Cat was also friends with DeVito. And to show you how small, you've talked about this, the tattoo community was micro, it was a microcosm of creativity. So small, everybody knew everybody. This is obviously way before the internet, you would write letters. I got letters from Paul Rogers. So through Cat, and then Cat had learned from DeVito, she met Paul Rogers. She went to visit him in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. And I said, Cat, you know, I probably need to get better tattoo machines. Would it be okay asking permission if I could get Paul's phone number and call him up at night? And she goes, yes. Um, so then I called Paul, introduced myself, said I knew Kat, she knew DeVita. Yeah. Although probably DeVita wasn't so happy about it because yeah. he was old school. Was he's, like, he's like, McCabe, well, who's this McCabe guy? <laughs> he knew who I was, but probably not so happy. About yeah. It. And so... Um, <laughs> I called Paul and Paul invited me to visit. And then I learned how to make a machine from scratch from Paul. I went twice and I have several Paul Rogers machines that I, some of them, those original Spalding and Rogers machines, Paul and I rebuilt Paul Rogers stuff. So then I had a machine that fucking worked. And so then my tattoos started looking better. Sweet. And then 1989, maybe Shotzi Gorman. He was, he was talking to Ron Lopez, okay. who tattoos in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Ron had lived in Staten Island. His son's name is Dave, and it's Dave and Chris Lopez at Ron and Dave's tattooing in Staten Island. Now, yeah. back then, Ron would tattoo out of his house, because tattooing was still illegal. Yeah. Tattooing was re-legalized in 87. So if I'm going back to 89, tattooing's still illegal. Yeah. So Ron was tattooing out of his house. And he said, you know what? I'm sick of this illegal shit. And he sussed out New Jersey, one of the closest towns in New Jersey that's legal in New Jersey, not New York, is Elizabeth, New Jersey. Right. So Ron opened up a tattoo shop in Elizabeth. He's still there yeah. on the second floor. And he asked me to come and work with him. Maybe shots, he said, get McCabe. He's a good guy. He teaches. And Ron, to this day, he doesn't like publicity. Incredibly skilled tattoo artist. Yeah. Really, really. This little guy just... It's just it's him as a person. Yeah. He's just figured it. He's good. Yeah. That's how to set up a machine. And we uh, we use Big Joe Kaplan machines at that point. Shaders. If you know how to set up a big, they're not available anymore. But back then, if you knew how to set up Big Joe Kaplan, and I went up to Mount Vernon to meet with Joe. Yeah. Joe was a nice, nice man. Very generous. He was like, "Come on, I'll show you how to do it." He showed me how to set up one of his machines, the shader. That's the best shading machine I ever used. It's, it's an aluminum machine. as has a uh, steel yoke for the conductivity. But that's, if you know how to set that machine up correctly, 
very has a, a thinner um, the back spring is thinner wow. it's not 12 gauge I think it's like thinner whatever that would be 16 gauge or 14 gauge it has more you have to, you have to retune it more often because the back yeah. spring doesn't have the rigidity of a yeah. 12 gauge but if you tune up that big Joe Kaplan shader that gets the ink in the best yeah so then Lopez helped me to tighten up my tattooing a great nice. deal he was very very helpful Oh. Yep. He's still out there. He doesn't want to talk about it, but he's really, really good. <laughs> and how long did you work there then? Uh, several years. Yeah. I think I worked there in, from maybe 1989. I would go on the weekends. And at first it was just like, oh my God, working in a production shop, a line of people. Yeah. And then finally getting a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. I think I worked there until 93. Yeah. And then I moved upstate. And I kind of, 93, I kind of gave up tattooing. It's just, it's enough. Really? Yeah, I just, I just, I want to write about it. Okay. You know, because by 93, it starts to become more popular. And yeah, the 90s, it started to explode. Yeah, it? and maybe that didn't interest me so much. Yeah. You know, I was like, I think I just want to write about it. Yeah. So then I found that Schiffer publisher and Hardy, and there may be another publisher. And I just published all those books. Yeah. Went to Japan, wrote a great book about tattooing in Japan. I just got a, I can't even believe it. The publisher, every couple months, they'll send you like a readout. That, that my job was called Japanese Tattoo Now. That sold more than 10,000 copies. Wow. I, I thought maybe it sold like 2,000. Yeah, you no, have no I just got a readout. You look at them like, so Japanese Tattoo Now, 9,982 copies. Cool. That's a lot of freaking books. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I've talked to Japanese, young Japanese tattooers. They say, that's the Bible. Even oh, the wow. young Japanese kids they've learned from this book. And they let you into that world. Because that world, I mean Yeah, it's pretty You talk cool. about the New York world being hard to tap into, I mean, yeah. the, the Japanese tattoo yeah, world. The language and the been. culture. Yeah. Part of it is just the Japanese people are very nice. Yeah. And they're very uh, accommodating and polite. Okay. And so they know you're an idiot. Yeah. Guy gene. You have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> so they just accommodate your stupidity. <laughs> So I was introduced. I started out in Tokyo um, at uh, Scratch Addiction. So Tokyo, huge city like London. The uh, Harajuku section of Tokyo is kind of like, what's the part of London where all the kid, punk kids hang out with their hair and stuff? Camden. So it's like Camden, or like little give, punk rock gift shops. Yeah. Kids. So the Harajuku section of Tokyo is the same. All the young uh, kids, mostly young women, go there to buy their punk clothes That's or right. kooky clothes. Yeah, and stuff. I've seen that style. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cute. <laughs> so, this guy Kawajiri, probably back in the 80s, he made a deal with the Yakuza. He said, I want to open up a tattoo shop, but it's not going to be any tattoo, uh, Japanese tattooing. It's going to be Western tattooing. Ah. And from what Kawajiri told me, he had a sit down with whatever family he had to sit down with, and they said, no problem no Japanese tattooing. Right. So Kawajiri pledged, no. Yeah. It's only gonna be Western style, called yeah. One Point. And he, uh, maybe he did a, somebody would go in there, but they're uh, Yushi uh, Ichinohe, a young Japanese tattooer at the time. He was a rockabilly guy. Yeah. He looks like a mod. Yeah. He did with the mod jacket and the mod hair. Yeah, he's like coming out of the, the rocket thing. No, they did not pursue but through 
Maybe Yushi hooked it up. Yushi knows a lot of people, man. I went from scratch addiction to um, three tides down in Osaka. Yeah, Masa Sakamoto, I think his name is. Maybe he made a call. A couple guys made calls for me. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm standing. I went back and forth a number of times. That's sometimes all it takes, though, isn't it? Just like somebody to vouch for yes. you or somebody yes. to say, and then that opens up maybe six people. Correct. And if you show up and you do what you're supposed to do, yeah. and you're not a jerk, no. and you're polite, and, and you send them a gift, yeah. give them a gift, exactly. be respectful, yeah. and then they invite you back. Yeah. If you don't, get lost. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was brought up like that. If somebody does something for you, do be nice. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same. So, did you I, ever meet, um, we're going, going back, but did you ever meet Jack Dracula? No. No. I could have. Yeah. He was working at a newsstand. Right. In Philadelphia. Yeah. His tattoos had all blurred out. Yeah. Jonathan Shaw got, uh, who was tattooing in New York at the time, he and I were a little bit friends, not so much. Shaw was a very odd dude. Yeah. Very strange guy. Yeah. Um, but he was very influential in his own way. Yeah. So you have to admit that. Yeah. And then yeah, he... Yeah, I've got a bunch of magazine articles that yes. he put out. Absolutely. Stuff. He worked for Skin and Ink. Yeah. Did a good job. Yeah. You know, he, I think he made a lot of enemies, but... I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't go through life like that, but whatever. Yeah. Everybody's different. Yeah. He got a good interview with Drac. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah. Yep. And so I could have, because I don't know if Blackie ever tattooed Dracula. Right. But Freddie told me, no, it was it was a uh, Philadelphia Eddie told me. Yeah. For whatever reason, Dracula, he was he was a erudite. He was an intellectual. Yeah. And he was always reading a book. I think in my book there's a picture of him. Yeah. Getting. A, Get his back done. Yeah, yeah, reading a book. Yeah. So both Freddie and Eddie told me that he's just an odd duck. Yeah. Weird guy. Yeah. And so there's all like 1950s, I don't know about in England, but in 1950s, more so 60s, and around there, there was this weird kind of cultural popular phenomenon. Everybody was into monsters. Yeah. The mummy. Yeah. Dracula. The, yeah. Frankenstein. The movie stuff. Yeah, this yeah. Is a, this is the way culture operates. Yeah. Um, when I explain it, culture is not static. It's always moving. It's expanding and it's contracting. Yeah. So now, you know, in America, using a political metaphor, you have the expansive years maybe of Clinton, where it's more embracing, more inclusive. And then you have the Bush years. So you have like the liberal expansion, conservative contraction. Yeah. So then, if that's just the cultural dynamic. Yeah. Constantly expanding, constantly uh, contracting. Yeah. So maybe culture, because culture is basically a representation of our intelligence. As you know, what's the one thing that gets human beings in trouble? Our intelligence. We yeah. think too much. <laughs> and we get in trouble immediately. I mean, Plato talks about that. We don't know what we're doing, but it's just like uncharted territory. So, I don't even know how to say it. This expansion and contraction, this is just the way the cultural dynamic is. Yeah. So then, tattooing could be one aspect of cultural expansion for originally a very small group of people. Yeah. Where people are using tattooing to express themselves. They're using images, they're using the process of the blood and the pain and the durability yeah. and the, um, 
longevity. This becomes like a, a loaded mark. It's an expressive mark. Now, now, as we talked about a lot earlier, now this cultural statement is expanded. And this, this to me, where tattooing is today now worldwide, if you go to London, if you go to Munich, if you go to wherever, yeah. Tokyo, all the kids are tattooed. Yeah. Why, 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 why? Because humans are intelligent and we're looking for an opportunity to use our intelligence. Yeah. And so tattooing then provides an opportunity because it has all this cultural cachet. It still has this historical cachet of scary, illegal, yeah. be careful, what yeah. are you doing, what are you crazy? So it has all that cachet that we need. We yeah. need, that becomes a part of this cultural equation. Everything can't be cut and dry. I, I think you go insane. Yeah. Um, maybe if you go to Orthodox cultures, everyone, have you ever been to Croatia? No. So Croatia is a beautiful place. It's a small country. It's very orthodox. It's all um, Eastern European Orthodox Christianity. Really orthodox, small culture. Um, maybe not engaged so much in expansiveness. The young people that I met in Croatia were beautiful, beautiful people, but they still, they had not yet taken that leap into um, this unchecked cultural expansion. Yeah. It was old school. Yeah. I know, like maybe you go to parts of London and then outside parts of England, like you go to where like, they call like the, the headlands or something, where all the sheep are. Yeah. It's probably like going back in time a hundred years, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely parts of England that do a lot. Yeah, so it's the same, that's just the way culture is, it flows. Yeah. I think the more cosmopolitan culture becomes, the more expansive it becomes. Yeah. So this fucking douchebag Trump He's anti-cosmopolitan. Because yeah. cosmopolitanism rubs conservative people. Trump's just a wannabe conservative. He's just using it as a device to latch onto these losers. But cosmopolitanism scares some people because it is expansive and it is kind of uncontrolled. And it is like, wow, yeah. wow, this is, this is scary. We've never been here before, you know. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about anthropology. This is incomplete. So in terms of anthropology, when you study, I study anthropology. When you study Homo sapiens, we've been around for like, what, a couple hundred thousand years, 300,000 years. Our species as Homo sapiens was cohabiting the planet yeah. with other species. Yeah. Obviously, we're Cro-Magnon. Before us was Neanderthal. Before them is like Homo, habil Homo erectus, Homo habilis. These are all hominids that were cohabiting the earth. But every time they find a Neanderthal, they find them in the in the valley. Yeah. Huddled around, fearful. Yeah. Every time, not every time, but often they'll find uh, Homo sapiens, us, up. Oh high. really? Yes. Why? Looking. Oh. So our what's it called? The hippocampus? And the cerebral cortex, which is your memory and your intelligence, for whatever reason, when we mutated, however, hundreds of thousands of million years to mutate, our brains evolved differently. Yeah. And what do we do? We started to walk. Yeah. We walked the fuck out of Africa. Neanderthal was already in Northern Europe. We came out of Africa. Yeah. We collided. You know, maybe we collided around Hungary. Maybe, maybe more around Turkey, yeah. a place like that. 
and basically we killed them all. Homo sapiens was smart. Yeah. We could plan. But the thing we figured out, if you go up high, you can make plans because yeah. you can see. Yeah. If you're down in the you're down in the valley, yeah. you're fucked. Yeah. You're just gonna get killed. Yeah. So this was some kind of a strange genetic mutation that basically facilitated Homo sapiens the, yeah. the species to succeed. So this base intelligence of being curious about the unknown. That's part of tattooing. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I'm so, yeah. so you do you feel like do you feel like that Dracula was a a byproduct of culture expanding where it was all this monster stuff and all this stuff that was Well part the, of the, the monster stuff became a vocabulary. Right. So imagine you're a person. I was told by Blackie and Freddie and Eddie that Dracula was an odd person. Yeah. Whatever that means, odd. I don't know what that means anymore. Yeah. But back in the day, in the 1950s, odd may have had a different connotation. Yeah, definitely. Because culture was less expansive back then. So now imagine you're a person possibly with mental illness. Yeah. Or possibly you're just a free thinker. Yeah. But there's no vocabulary for you to understand or to you to pursue your way of free thinking. Yeah. So then you latch onto this weird monster stuff yeah. because it becomes a vocabulary that provides you a entree. Yeah. It provides it becomes your vocabulary to help to voice these maybe deep inner urges, deep inner questions. You know, yeah. the monster thing. To tell you the truth, where does the monster thing come out of? Occultism, right? Yeah. All this, like, with the Bela Lugosi and Dracula. Yeah, of course. This is like occultism. Yeah. And so, I don't know if you... Um, definitely in England, there was a whole occultist movement yeah. in England where people were convinced there was another realm of, of reality. And they would have seances. Yeah. And the tables would be banging around. It was all <laughs> like a bunch of carnival nonsense. Yeah, exactly. You know, I read recently... One woman who was very, she made a lot of money. I think in London, double check that, either London or New York, but one woman, she had a, in her ankle, yeah. she had some kind of a uh, malformed ankle. Right. So when she went like this, her ankle made a very loud click. <laughs> so she would have so seances, she, she would have seances, mostly wealthy people, yeah. you know, like the wealthy people we have today who think it's okay to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to go on a fake mission to nowhere and yeah. out of space. Fuck these people. What, yeah. are they fucking kidding me? These arrogant yeah. motherfuckers. And I, I just, I was, I don't pray, but yesterday I did. I said, let that fucking thing hit the fucking ocean. <laughs> I mean, fuck those people. They think it's okay for them to just, can you know the arrogance of this? Uh, yeah. Just playing, they're on a joyride to outer space. <laughs> fuck off. So the rich people back then, Maybe they got into occultism, yeah. and it was massaged by, you know, very savvy people. They would have a seance, we're going to communicate with your long-lost aunt. Yeah, and then the taps into your emotion needs. Yep, and then she would sit there with her table, and then she would be able to click her ankle. Oh, that was the... And she that was made, them communicating. Yes, and she made <laughs> fucking thousands. She made thousands of dollars on her weird <laughs> ankle click. It shows you how hungry... So that's, you know, the unknown and all this stuff. Yeah. So that goes back to Homo sapiens. Why are Homo sapiens fascinated about the unknown? Why do we go to the top? Why do we walk for tens of... Th we really 
as a species, we walk tens of thousands of miles. Ne uh, Neanderthal wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Neanderthal would have moved from this, you know, as a hunter-gatherer, they would, would have hunted out this area, yeah. moved to the next area. Yeah, moved to the next, it would have been very methodical. Yeah, yeah. No, Homo sapiens were up top, are like, whoa, man, that's looking pretty good, let's go. Let's now they're like walking tens of thousands of miles out of Africa, through Asia Minor, Turkey, into Central Europe, and now they're colliding with uh, Neanderthal and killing them all. Yeah. But the, that basic that basic intelligence of Homo sapiens, yeah. it's just kind of like this basic curiosity. Yeah. So that's why the lady with the clicking ankle could take advantage of these people. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a Neanderthal would say, like, catch it, your fucking ankle. <laughs> Who are you kidding? Because <laughs> they didn't have it. They couldn't make the conceptual leap. Um, when you talk about England, Mike, when did you visit England? Hey. Was that part of, like, research or no, tattooing, or you just wanted to go? No, I, that's actually, I broke up with my first wife, and then my friend... Uh, Bix invited me over cool. to just come and hang out. It's going to be rough the Cape. Yeah. Divorces don't... You've only been married once? Yeah. Keep it that way. Yeah. <laughs> right? Be respectful to your wife. Always love your wife. Yeah. Every night before you go to sleep, tell your wife you love her. Yeah. I tell my wife, my new wife, the Cape is a lucky dude, all right? Yeah. My wife is a really, really nice woman. Yeah. And so always be respectful to your wife. And uh, life will be good. The minute you go through this horrible divorce thing, yeah. it's horrible. So Bix was very generous, invited me over. I had no idea what I was getting into. And then I got my little tour book and went to see Bix and then right to the British Museum, yeah. right to the National Archives. I went to these other, I went to the Saatchi collection. Oh. Yeah, London's a beautiful city. Yeah. My wife wants to go big time. Yeah, nice, yeah, she definitely visit again. So that's why I went, just to like, get way drunk with these Peckham girls. They, yeah. they were so brutal. <laughs> they, uh, I like Guinness. But you guys have imperial pints here, and it's ridiculous now in the city. You charge nine dollars for a, not even a pint, a yeah. real pint, yeah. let alone an imperial pint. Yeah. So these girls would buy no shit. They would make me drink fifteen pints. They'd line them up. <laughs> Come on, Mikey boy. Like a show. There's number one. <laughs> I'm like, okay, number one, number two, number number three of the imperial pint. I'm getting yeah. drunk, and they wouldn't let me go. I, I then they all laughed, and they, everybody drank. I got so drunk. I'd never been drunk like that in my whole life. Yeah. Just brutal. I don't even remember. I was that drunk. <laughs> 10 pints of Guinness? Oh. Yeah. You're lucky you weren't in hospital. Yeah. I mean, I remember I went back to Bix's parents' house and they said, just go to bed. <laughs> Set for like a whole day. I was, I was destroyed. Yeah, yeah. And then the next day, hanging out with the pecking girl, they're just laughing at me. But they're just like throwing them back. Yeah. They, these girls are tough. Yeah. Really cracked me up. Did you find any similarities between New York and London? Uh, both cosmopolitan cities yeah. with a diverse and changing population, yeah. like we talked about earlier, yeah. from the days of manufacturing. You know, like in London, that was it, right? You read like um, Dickens, the early days of industrialization, where you know, this is where Marx was hanging out. Marx was like, wow, this is pretty fucking brutal. What's this all about? Yeah. And this whole original days of capitalism. That first happened in London. Yeah. With all the textile industry, early manufacturing, the shift from the trades to 
like in America. Yeah. You had the trades where you actually had a skill that was marketable. To now the assembly line of Ford, yeah. where all you're doing every day is just, you're just tightening a bolt. Yeah. You're, you're intentionally deprived of your skills so that you can't charge. Yeah. So there's another theory I have, maybe a little bit for my Marxist stuff. I'm convinced in talking with these old guys from New York, and maybe yourself, one of the beauties of tattooing, maybe from day one, in, during the industrial period, yeah. it provided an opportunity for people to get out from underneath the drudgery of manual labor. Yeah. So you have like an under, not, not, you're all intelligent people, but just undereducated for a very variety of reasons. So they don't have entree into uh, paying professions. Yeah. So these would be like Coney Allen Freddie, if he didn't tattoo, yeah. he would be a ditch digger. Yeah, of course. Black, he would be a ditch digger. Yeah. The Repo Brothers would probably be in jail. Yeah. And they were aware that that was like probably what they did before they were tattooing or, or whilst they were still tattooing. They were knocking about, they were knocking about, probably doing something that they were going to go to jail for. Yeah, yeah. They were like, you know, clip artists. They were stealing yeah. shit, whatever. And then tattoo because of this intrinsic interest that homo sapiens have with marking themselves and looking for symbols and whatever that's all about. Yeah. The semiotics of it. Yeah. Super complicated, really yeah. complicated. This, because of this fascination that we have as homo sapiens, tattooing provided an opportunity for people. If you're willing to take the, the risk and you then didn't have to go wake up 4.30 every morning to then go dig a ditch all yeah. day for nothing. Now you were self-employed. Yeah. This was completely liber a liberating experience. Yeah. And that's why it became secretive immediately. You know, I remember when I finally learned how to make needles. I finally learned how to make a needle bar. Yeah. I finally learned how to tune a machine. These were the early days of tattooing when it was a highly guarded trade. And those trade secrets were not divulged. Yeah. Why? You don't want people to know how to do this. The reason you're not digging that fucking ditch, my friend, is because you somehow know how to do this and you can make money doing it. Blackie had a new car every couple of years. Wow. He didn't even, I think mean, he probably, maybe he graduated high school, maybe. Yeah. No, Blackie was a nice guy, just intuitively smart person, yeah. very fair person. Uh, if he was sitting here right now, he would have loved this conversation. Yeah. He was an intellectually curious person. Cool. It was just a warm-hearted guy. That's Everybody nice. loved Black. I love that, because I, I recently bought, uh, I collect some tattoo stuff. I like, recently bought uh, an old photo of Blackie. It's oh, a super good. cool one. Beautiful. It's got like black glasses on. It's like cool. just Oh yeah, that's a nice picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, with the white t-shirt. Yeah, 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 yeah. he had a sense of style. Yes, yeah, wearing like white, stylish. white, and uh, he got a pair of like nice black loafers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. man. He looks so smart. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice to hear, because for me, that these, a lot of these people that I learn, I'm learning about, I guess I'm kind of where you were in the 80s now, right? So I'm like investigating yes. and trying to yes. um, like preserve this history. Sure, it's really good what but, you're doing. But for a lot of the, a lot of these names, they're abstract to me. That, you know? me too. I've just seen pictures of them. Yes. Whatever. So it's nice when you hear like stories that are then you can attach to those photos. Yep. And they, stuff. they become humanized. Those photos to life. Yeah. Yep. So then. Thank God, Tyler, and to some degree, Davida, um, and my experience on the Bowery, and my experience with anthropology. Yeah. Just, and that one professor at, at 
university. Yeah, it said go for it. Yeah, he said, said, this is good, McCabe, do this. Because I had Drew tremendous self-doubt about it. Yeah, I'll other you. other Because everyone else was they were like, like, what? That. Yeah. yeah, they were just like, what the fuck are you studying? This this is nonsense. Yeah, it's pointless. Yeah, well, it's not nonsense. Yeah. This is human endeavor and human curiosity and creativity. Yeah. yeah. And history and anything is interesting, isn't it? So, yep. Realistically. Um, when you were in England, Mike, who, which tattooers did you, did you visit? I know we Bix uh, brought me to see Jack Ringo. Yeah. And then he brought me to see this guy, Ian Frost. Okay. Um, I Googled Ian Frost, there's nothing. Right. Uh, he was a very gentlemanly, uh, when I saw him, I don't even remember, maybe he was Peckham, yeah. but I don't remember. I had no idea where I was. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But I remember... Because of all the Guinness. Yeah, that could have had something to do with it. I didn't even know what my name was, actually. <laughs> yeah. All I know Hi, is... I, I'm, the, uh, I just said, these Peckham girls are trouble, man. <laughs> they're getting me way too drunk. And they're all laughing at me. And, like, I'm on the floor. They're like, come on, Mikey boy, and one more. I'm like, oh, fuck. These people are crazy. <laughs> oh, ten pints again. It's yeah. Imperial pints. Yeah, man. What was Jack Ringo like, Mike? Hey, uh, I mean, like I talked about earlier, he had a gentleman. I remember he was wearing a, 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 a jacket, a blazer. Yeah. Um, and I remember he had kind of a uh, accent like you, educated, yeah. erudite, humored. As we talked about earlier, the whole rhymey thing. Yeah. He was having fun with me, saying <laughs> stuff like, I can't even remember them. But there are all these like little phrases yeah. that would rhyme. You string them together and people have no idea what you're Yeah, about. it was like a secret language. Yeah, he, so he yeah. was having fun with me with that, trying to, <laughs> trying to tell me about that. The shop was very small. Yeah. The flash was really um, very, I don't know how to say it. Amateurs would yeah. not be, that, but it's not kind, you know. It is what it is. But he was drawing his own flash, right? Yeah, yeah. So he was I'm trying pretty, to recreate stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was flat. It was a small. It was like a closet shop. Was it? I think it was in Woolwich. Woolwich. Yeah. That's right. And maybe that's near the water. Maybe is that near the ocean? I don't know. Uh, no? Okay. Uh, yeah. I have no idea where okay. I went. So Woolwich. I remember it was a tiny little shop. He was a. He was a, he was a gentleman. Yeah. He had this gentlemanly, um, a very polite. Uh, Bex was with me. I didn't know anything about anything. I just—he was talking about the make and break. And he was showing his, showing me his machines. Yeah. And I remember there was a couple. He was tattooing a couple of girls. And I wasn't sure they were speaking English. <laughs> their, their accent was, was so. so yeah. I had no idea what language they were. Yeah. It could have been. It sounded like Middle Eastern. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? And these were, they were nice girls. Yeah. Um, what is it about these English girls? Their skin is so pretty. <laughs> they can be fucking killers. They could cut your throat. <laughs> but their skin is so beautiful. I've never <laughs> seen skin like this on women. Why is that? <laughs> this beautiful white, it's very moist. Yeah. They're beautiful. Yeah, perfect for a tattoo. I guess, but people told me it's because there's a lot of humidity. Because okay. it's, it's uh, England's obviously an island. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of, I remember in London looking up at the sky. Yeah. And there were just these whirlwinds of clouds yeah. from the uh, from the oceans, yeah. maybe from the from the different temperatures or something. Yeah, exactly. It was I had never seen anything like that. Yeah, it's a weird And then these girls' skin was just really, really pretty skin. Yeah. But these girls, I really didn't think they were speaking English, 
and Jack was tattooing their, you know, thigh or something. Yeah. They were they were rough. Yeah. They were nice kids, but whoa. Yeah. So, I mean, women weren't really getting tattooed too much then, though, were they, Mike? Probably not. So these were probably rough girls. Maybe, yeah. you know, they were nice girls. They kind of were just teasing me. But, you know, very, very tough. <laughs> but very... They were, they were cool. So then, and then, and then, so Bix brought me to hang out with Ringo. Maybe I went a couple times. Yeah. Just talking, just mostly just listening for me. Um, I don't think I made any recordings. Yeah. Anything. Then he brought me to Ian Frost's place, small shop. Cool. I don't know what neighborhood. He was wearing kind of a white lab coat. Oh yeah, that was a thing, wasn't it? And, uh, and they wanted to look like doctors. And he was known for his machines, whereas Ringo used makes some breaks, uh, coil machines. Ian Frost. He made rotary machines. Yeah, right. And they were uh, buffed, not chrome, shiny, but buff metal. They looked like dentistry instruments. Yeah, that's right. They were beautiful. Yeah, a lot of them were using those at that time. So. And he told me that he made these himself and sold them. I should have bought one, but I, yeah. I didn't even want to, I didn't want to overstep. Yeah, cool. But his accent, again, I didn't even know what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> I couldn't understand half the time. But he was very gentlemanly. Was he? He was kind of portly, yeah. like a bigger guy, not fat or something, just a bigger, not tall, but just a bigger guy. Yeah. Um, Soft spoken. When you hear that sound, then you're into motorcycles. Yeah, yeah. So just yesterday was a big motorcycle event in Brooklyn, the Indian Larry event. So these guys are probably all oh, yeah, zipping around. Um, but I remember Ian Frost was a gentlemanly, polite, yeah. uh, answered my questions, but it, I don't really remember him. Yeah. I, I just remember his personage was very nice man. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't think he's still around. Jack Ringo died a little while ago. He's, he, was uh -huh. very, he was more animated. Was it? Uh, Jack Ringo animated, humorous, yeah. very funny guy, very yeah. animated, how to make a good conversation, yeah. skilled at gift of gab, yeah, yeah, yeah. really good sense of humor. He was having a lot of fun with these girls, and they were really getting a kick out of it. <laughs> but uh, Ian Frost, more subdued, maybe not a gift of gab, yeah. a quiet guy, yeah. different, um, different vibe. Yes. Yeah. Have you got tattooed lately, Mike? Have no. Huh? What was the last one you had done? Maybe when I was in Japan, I got yeah. Horiyoshi tattooed my neck. Oh, cool. He gave me an home. And I maybe I got tattooed in Thailand. This, yeah. I don't know which one was, came first. Sweet. I think this was Jimmy that, Wong. Yeah. So these are my last. Jimmy Wong, this is a, uh, as you know, Thai tattooing is all based on mysticism and magic. Yeah, that's why. So this is a great, this tattoo, tattoo, tattoos, not all of them. In Thailand, they have black magic tattoos that they're referred to as black magic that are kind of dicey and maybe scary meanings. But then mainstream, uh, what were the mainstream uh, tight tattoos, mostly on, on men, it was like crowd control. Yeah. It was like all these good luck marks. Um, so this tattoo is an example of this. This tattoo, wearing this tattoo, you will always know the truth. Okay. Whatever yeah. situation you're in, you'll always know the truth. Yeah. But you must always tell the truth. Right. So if you, don't, truth. If, if you don't yeah. tell the truth, the tattoo will lose its power. Oh, and so when you go through Thai tattoos, uh, the, uh, mainstream Thai tattoos, not the black magic stuff, 
many of them are based on behavior modification, the tattoo symbols, because you can go, I don't think, I have a couple books on them. Somebody should do it at some point, but nobody's gone, by, gone through the meanings of Thai tattoos extensively and figure out how to translate the meaning. Yeah. But from what I, the few that I've done, because I had friends in Bangkok, I had friends with Jimmy Wong and Joy Wong. They told me that mostly it's about behavior modification. Yeah. Like, you know, the tattoos are all about good luck. If you have this, then that. Then yeah, but that. somehow you have to, you must, you have to agree to honor the integrity of the tattoo yeah. to get the benefits. That's right, yeah. If yeah, you, I've got this one done on my throat. That yeah. one's kindness. Nice one, yeah. Where'd yeah. you get that? I got that. I got really lucky, actually. There's a, there was a, a, a master, like a sak Sakyan master, that was traveling in Europe. Oh, yeah. And uh, he came to London. Ajahn Nu? Uh, he's north of Bangkok? Then? I can't remember his name. Ajahn Nu is like the big guy. He's like, okay. he's always on films and stuff. Okay, I can't remember the guy's name. But um, yeah, it was, he did that in like a basement of a shop in, in, uh, in Shoreditch. Cool. It was cool. He just put like a, it's tough, right? you a pen mic there and a pen mark yeah. there and then just the way he went. Didn't know stencil. Nah. Straight on, but I think that's part. That was part of the mysticism. Sure, of the whole thing for me, was you can't even imagine that they can do it. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, and it was perfect. So I was really happy. Yeah, beautiful. It was an amazing experience. I bet. Sure, Did he blow on it afterwards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was chanting, doing all the gut, like really guttural chanting. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. And he was like after and before and after. Had to give him an offering. Yep. with uh, incense sticks and money sure. and everything yeah. else. I really liked that ritualistic yep. aspect of it. So the guy that broke me in, Tyler, he was like like that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he, he did tattooing the same way, where um, I had to wait for an auspicious calendar date, yeah. maybe my birthday, um, to get tattooed. I had to wait for a certain hour. Cool. So he was coming out of that tradition. Yeah, I like that. I like that ritual. Cool. I kind of feel like... Um, I started working privately recently in London because of the whole COVID thing, you know? Sure. So, um, I was working in a shop with like 10 other people. Yeah, you so, told me, everybody so, did. Yeah, so working. I'm working privately now. Brutal. And uh, I feel like there's more of a ritualistic aspect to that. You know, I always meet them at the door. Yeah. You know, I like walk through to the studio. Yeah. We spend a lot of time just being them. Yeah. Then I walk them down. Yeah. Sometimes we go for coffee. And I know it's not quite as spiritual, but it definitely feels like more of a ritual no, than absolutely. just like them walking in, seeing the person Absolutely, the desk, I told my, my, my tattoo uh, studio on East Fifth Street was the same way. Yeah. Had a buzz, yeah. and went out. I met him at the door, sussed him out, and let him in. They had to have an appointment. Yeah. You know, showed him my sterilizer immediately in the yeah. sterilization bag so they knew oh. what to deal with. Yeah. I, I ran it the same way. So now what's going on in New York, and this is what you're talking about. So, and in London as well.